Hello, Adam. Oh. How are you, Jackson? Doing pretty well. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, so obviously the plan today uh, is to go through the Sixers season, um, which I think we both thought uh, would would be going a little longer, um, of course. But um, we'll talk through kind of the, the general our general thoughts on it, um, and then get to some more specific details and kind of look ahead to to what the next steps are. But uh, you know. Just to kind of lead off, I think it's I think it's interesting because you and I, you know, obviously we've we've talked about and covered the Sixers, you know, whether it's together or simultaneously for different outlets for three years now, I think at least. Um, and I felt like we were pretty in pretty much in lockstep most of the way about how we felt about this team. You know, when they made the moves to get Danny Green and Seth Curry and, and trade away Al Horford and Josh Richardson, who were bad fits, we thought, okay, this is a better team than last year. Um, obviously, with Daryl Morey in town, you feel more confident. Um, but neither of us really expected them to be this good, um, to the, or we'll get to the point of being the number one seed. Um, and as the season progressed, I think we all, we kept kind of saying, you know, the, the Sixers are, are outperforming our expectations. Um, you know, we didn't expect them to get the, keep the one seed after they got it. Um, but in the end, it, it kind of feels like to an extent they ended up being the, the team we thought they were. And that's not too... I'm not trying to like toot our horn and say, oh, we were right in the end. I'm not trying to do that at all. But uh, it just kind of seems to be the way covering this team goes. Um, I mean, you, you talk, you kind of we're talking here off the second round exit again for the third time in, in four years during the Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid partnership. Um, but what, what are your general thoughts on this season? How do you kind of reflect back on it? And then, you know, we can kind of bounce, bounce around kind of our, our thoughts together on that. But what do you, what do you make of this season? Because it kind of came crashing down, for lack of a more delicate term, very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you could say simply that it just wasn't a good enough collection of basketball players. Like, I think, you know, just strictly the talent on the roster does not uh, necessarily, you know, have enough on it. Uh, and obviously we saw that with them losing to the Bucks. Uh, sorry, losing to the Hawks, rather. Um you know, they made a lot of progress after, you know, the 2019-20 season, which went really poorly for them. Uh, but, you know, improving does not mean that you're good enough to win a championship. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, like you said, we were in lockstep most of the way. You know, this is a very good team. They went from good to very good. To get the number one seed is very impressive. But even after they did that entering the playoffs, uh, I didn't consider them a genuine championship contender, and I don't think you did either. Um, and there are a lot of specific issues that led to that that we're going to talk about. But I do think, you know, it's worth mentioning as well, like they might have just not had enough players to begin with who, uh, you know, can thrive in a playoff atmosphere. Yeah, for sure. And I think speaking of that, you know, Daryl Morey had his first offseason presser of the year um, this morning slash afternoon. Um, and that was part of the thing he talked about is clearly this team just wasn't didn't have enough good players, um, which is. A very simplistic way of, of analyzing things, and by all means, we're going to get more in-depth about what that means. Um, but at its core, that is often why teams fall short of their goals in the playoffs or in the regular season. Um, but, but I agree, and I think um, you know, I think the playoff part of that is, is so key um, because, I, you know, Tobias Harris had an excellent regular season, had an excellent first, I don't know, 75% of the playoffs, honestly. I mean, he was great against the Wizards. You know, that was a, good match, that was a great matchup for him. The Wizards were probably the worst team in the playoffs. Um, and he was good the first three and a half games of this series. Um, 
you know, was really struggled in, 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 that, in that fourth quarter, um, you know, meltdown again in game four, and then also or that second half, and then that fourth quarter meltdown in game five um, was fine in game six, um, but again, had 24 points on 20, eight of 24 shooting and six of six to the free throw line uh, in game seven. That's, you know, that's 27 shooting possessions. That's that's not going to cut it for a guy that's supposed to kind of be your your best perimeter initiator there. Um, but, but yeah, I think the way I look at it, when I kind of reflect back into these now having a couple of days to, you know, look at it, I guess, more in depth and think about it more than just reactionary, um, you know, analysis, which I don't think necessarily, it doesn't, that, my kind of initial thoughts after they lost, I don't think by any means is like misguided or anything, but um, it was a, a huge missed opportunity. Like, I mean, there's no, there's no way around. I mean, we you mentioned that neither of us really thought they were a true title contender, but I think the way the playoffs unfolded, and you can correct me if you feel differently, there was a chance this team, like if it played up to its standard, could have won a title given the way the fact that James Harden was compromised. Um, you know, Kyrie Irving was going to be out for at least some sort of time period if the, if the Nets went on to win. The Bucks, while a good team, I don't think are the same level as the as the Nets at full strength. Um, you know, Kawhi had a, has some knee issue. And the Suns, while very good, probably haven't quite been as tested as you would want a team to like be, to declare them the the title winner or the title favorite. Um, and the list goes down the line. So, um, just a huge missed opportunity because at the end of the day, I mean, Joel Embiid turned twenty seven three months ago. Um, you're kind of looking at kind of a three year window ideally for a guy to be this good. And Joel has some faults, of course. We'll, we'll talk about them to an extent, but. You, this is another year that I know. I think both of us tweeted about it, where they've had a guy who's at the very least a top ten player, probably someone you can win a title with, and they failed to progress beyond the second round. Um, so I think there are definitely some micro positives from this t- this season. You know, whether it's Joel taking a leap forward, Tyrese Maxey, and some other things that we'll talk about. Um, but on the whole, it's it's really just another season in which, or I guess it's it's a season in which you have an MVP caliber player. And you couldn't progress beyond the second round, despite having home court advantage and playing two and a half games at full strength. While the, the, the Hawks, you know, didn't have—I I shouldn't say full strength because Joel had a bad meniscus, but you had your full complement of players. While the Hawks, um, you know, were without DeAndre Hunter, who was a very key player for them. Of course, he's not—he's not the key player, but um, you had a health advantage, you know, through the early portion of this series, um, and and you couldn't capitalize. So. Um, anything you want to add to that, Adam, before maybe get into a little more of the specifics here? But that was just kind of my general thoughts on it and, and kind of why this was such a missed opportunity because of how good their best player was and how the kind of the playoffs are shaping up with such a weird season. So many guys, unfortunately, you know, succumbing to injury throughout the regular season and the playoffs. Yeah, I think you did a good job, uh, you know, touching on everything. I, I would just reiterate, like, re- I'm not sure things could have possibly played better into their hand going into this uh, to get the one seed, you don't have to play Milwaukee or Brooklyn. You're going to have those two teams, you know, killing each other for seven games, basically. You play, you know, the Hawks, who obviously have proven to be very good, but we're not, you know, in that elite tier uh, going into the playoffs, you know, for all these different reasons that things should have gone swimmingly, and it just didn't. So you, I think you did a good job of addressing that, Um and that's just, you know, when I think back over the last, you know, month or so, however long the playoffs have been going on, I just think, like, man, they really, like, if they can't get there in this kind of situation, what situation are they going to get there in? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Daryl talked about it today. I think he was saying that, like, he still can't believe they lost Game 7 uh, at home. And uh, when, he, when he said that, in my head, I was like, well, you're, 
you, you'd be around, you'd be around Philadelphia sports for long enough. You'll start to believe it, but yeah, um, right. But, but the point being there is, yeah, you're the one seat at home. You worked all season to get to this point. And yes, to an extent, they load manage at times. They were very cautious with Joel. Joel missed 21 games. Um, even Ben, I think, missed 10 or 11. Tobias missed five, five or seven games. Um, but for the most part, they were one of the, the healthier teams among kind of the, the cream of the crop this year. Obviously, Phoenix is kind of the, the leader for that. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, Chris Paul has come down with COVID, um, you know, asymptomatic COVID. But, um, generally speaking, the Sixers are one of the more healthy teams. The Bucks were in that, you know, in that, uh, tier as well, I would say, unless I'm forgetting some injuries for them. But um, I know Giannis dealt with maybe a knee injury for a little bit in the middle of the season. But um, yeah, there's there's no way to really look at it either, other than a huge missed opportunity. I think if you're trying to find the positive angle to it, because I don't want to be all doom and gloom. I think there are definitely some positives. But I think kind of the positive would be that you now have a full offseason for Daryl Morey to assess this team. Um and kind of see where he can plug the holes in. And that's not to say, oh, Daryl's going to figure out everything. Daryl made some made some missteps, whether it was trading away kind of your second best center in Tony Bradley um, for a guy in George Hill who did do some good things defensively. I thought he was up and down defensively. He did have some really nice peaks defensively in this in this playoff run, um, but was clearly not enough offensively. And for that to be your only deadline move um, and not and to fill your final roster spot with another power forward on a team that has you have five power forwards basically, whether it's Ben, Tobias, Mike Scott, Paul Reed. Uh, Anthony Tolliver. I know, I know Paul Reed's more of a small ball five, but you know he can also play the four. Um, I think that was another messed up. So Daryl did a lot of good things. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to like say otherwise, but I, but I do think he deserves some portion of responsibility for, you know, as you said, kind of just not being a good enough basketball team. But the positive angle is Daryl Morey has a track record of being very good at his job, and his presser today spoke to the idea that he knows his team needs to get better. He said that he knows they need to get better offensively, which was clearly the case the last three or four games of the series against the Hawks. Um, but it, it, it just, it is a, it is a, it is a misstep, you know, for everyone involved, not just, not just Daryl, not just the players. Um, we'll talk about doc for sure. Um, but it's a misstep and, and because like, I expect Joel Embiid to be more or less this caliber of player for the next couple of years as he, a prime usually runs from 26 to 29. He'll be from 29 in a couple of years, kind of toward the end of the regular season. But there's no guarantee he has a better season than this when you, when you couple it between a very good playoff showing and a, awesome regular season as well uh and we just keep getting to these places where it's like you've you know we you've tweeted i've tweeted i've kind of repeated myself but like you don't get this type of player very often and it's not yet another season where um because of the roster around him and decisions pertaining to that um he wasn't in an ideal situation and the team wasn't in a situation to maximize him and that's that's tough because these guys don't come around I mean, joel and be a special player um, and they they haven't quite capitalized on that to the degree that they need to. And as you said, this is their best opportunity yet. And there's no there's no guarantee they have a better one. There's no guarantee there's a better version of Joel Embiid, even if I expect him to be a very good player for the next, for the X number of year, but at this level for at least a couple more seasons. Yeah, I mean, I you know like you generally trust that Daryl Morey can properly evaluate the group and figure out what they need. The question is, you know, will they have enough to actually get whatever it is that they decide they need? Because they just, you know, before Daryl got here, there was a regime that spent, you know, four years uh, just wasting assets really at every possible turn. Impressively um, so, honestly, the, the rate at which yeah, they exhausted all, all the assets, assets it's, to them. <laughs> it's, tr- it's truly unbelievable to think about sometimes, like just looking back at individual moves and it was just like, a bunch of D plus moves that coalesced into a giant F. Um, yeah, yeah, was really bad. 
Everything stems uh, from those missteps over the, the the years without between the years between Hinky and and Mori taking over, kind of where everything. Yeah, goes. yeah, yeah. Whether that's the Colangelo, Elton Brand, Alex Rucker, etc. group, um, you know, they made things really hard for their successor. Um, <laughs> so you know, Daryl certainly got his work cut out for him. Of course, it's still a very good team, and you know, he has great pieces to build around. But uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's much more calming to think about, you know, OK, they have to make some significant changes. But Daryl Morey is the one who will be doing it versus, you know, like the mysterious Sixers collaborative GM uh, who, first of all, like nobody even knew who was making the decisions. <laughs> and second of all, uh, pretty much all of their decisions were disastrous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know. The issue, I mean, it, it seems so simplistic. Again, I, I feel like I'm going to harp on this probably all offseason to a degree. But the issue is this team just isn't good enough in a playoff atmosphere. Um, Joel is a very good player, but even his offensive contributions, for one reason or another, were, were slightly diminished in that last year against the Hawks. I think he averaged 30 on, I want to say, 59 or 60% true shooting, which is very good. I'm not saying otherwise, but I think he was at 30 on 64, 65 in the regular season. Again, you don't play... You know, I mean, the Hawks are probably a slightly above average defense, probably a little more above average in the playoffs. Um, but he, he wasn't quite as good. He was better defensively. I mean, Joel's defense, I could do 25 minutes on his defense in these playoffs, um, just how incredible he was on that end. Um, but uh, again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want, I'm not saying Joel is the reason they lost by any means, but um, when you get a slightly diminished Joel Embiid offensively and you get a Tobias Harris, who over the last three games um, was anything but his, himself over the first 95% of the season, um, and then you get Ben Simmons, who basically is a, a complete non-factor in the half court. Um, and you're turning to Seth Curry to take 15 shots tonight. And Seth Curry was incredible. Um, I mean, he, he was just an absolute flamethrower. And Tyrese Maxey to close a do-or-die game six. Um, you have some issues with your talent. Um, but uh, I, I do want to talk about Ben. And I, wanna, I, I don't want to uh, – we're not here to do hot takes. We're not here to, you know – just you know, attacking his character and like that. Um, but I do, I do wonder for someone, for your perspective, who is very good with the cap, cap, the cap salary cap. My goodness, someone said cap salary. Um, <laughs> who's very good with the salary cap and you know, kind of assessing the league as a whole. What, what does maybe a potential Ben trade look like? Maybe some targets for you that you think are maybe somewhat attainable, and maybe one or two that's a little more idealistic. But I do want to add the caveat that the point where you're at right now is even if you trade Ben, I, I think you can find a guy who's a better fit offensively, but I don't think it necessarily reaches the threshold you need talent wise to be a number two guy. And so I think any, any trade about with involving Ben, yes, it can make the team better. I want, I think there are definitely ways it can do that because of how poor of a fit he is beyond the first round offensively with, with Joel and even Tobias to an extent. But I need to make clear that you don't have a, there's not like, there's no James Harden out there. And I, I know that some guy, will be available who's probably better than maybe the market right now. Um, but you're at a spot where I, I don't know if the, the guy you get back or the guys you get back for Ben um, get you to the talent threshold you need for this team to be title caliber, and that, that's the issue. Um, but with that being said, what do you kind of see as some realistic or you know attainable deals centered around Ben uh, to maybe improve this team offensively? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough, and, you know, to be – to be frank, the situation is pretty dire at this point, uh, especially when you consider, 
you know, what Ben's value around the league was a couple of years ago, let alone at the beginning of this year when they almost flipped him for James Harden, who, in my opinion, is, you know, one of the five or so best players in the NBA. Um, as far as specific candidates for a trade, uh, I think the one that gets mentioned the most right now is C.J. McCollum. Uh, I would defer to you on how he would fit. You have watched a lot more of C.J. than I have. Um, but it's kind of the issue, like you said, where, yes, you're getting a lot better offensively, specifically in the half court when the game slows down, you know, in a playoff atmosphere. Um, but you're losing a lot defensively, and it's fair to ask, you know, are they really a better team if they do that? Um, and it's just, you know, I just say this to reiterate, you know, like, just think about where Ben, like Ben Simmons is one of the most valuable assets in the league in his first few years, because he came in right off the bat and was, you know, a borderline all-star level player really from the minute he stepped on the floor for the first time in 17, 18. Uh, and now we're talking about, you know, like, Oh, could they get CJ McCollum for him? And all due respect to CJ McCollum, but you know, that's very far down from, you know, where Ben's value was before. Yeah. I think speaking of that, I mean, there, there are differences. Yes, CJ has played in the West, and the West historically has been a, a deeper talent pool. Um, but you're saying, can we trade our 24-year-old one-time All-NBA guy for our for the, I think CJ's 28, 29, for the guy who's never been an All-Star All-NBA guy? Um, and that's not me trying to say oh, Ben is a way better player than CJ. I think given the way that Ben has severely struggled in the playoffs every year beyond the first round, they're you know, probably in a similar you know plane of ca- kind of a similar talent tier. Um, but but I agree, I agree with you that it they, I mean, he he really his struggles have really kind of bogged down his value, uh, you know, on the trade market. Um, I think now the guy that makes some sense would be Malcolm Brogdon. Um, he is still, he, I mean, he was someone who probably the Sixers fans. He's a good player, um, but his kind of struggles as a creator would would also be frustrating. But obviously, he's a better player than he's a better offensive player um, than than Ben Simmons, and also adds a, a good amount of defensive value. Um, but and I think you know. The, the important thing for people to remember, because there's this idea that like there's no contract that's untradeable, and I, and I agree with that, but the my pushback to that would be, and this is in relation to either Ben or Tobias to an extent, um, I don't think it's like imperative that they move Tobias, but I wouldn't be surprised if they try to explore his his market. Um, but my, my kind of, my add-on to that would be, yes, no contract is untradeable, but not every contract is has utility for you. Like, you can't, like the six star in a place to just like unload a cap guy. Like they have Joel Embiid as a top five player in the NBA or top five caliber. Like they're not in a place to just oh, let's get off this contract. They're in a place let's move off of this player who happens to make a lot of money and try to maximize our best player's prime. Like there's a difference there, right? It's not it's not the wizard situation where I guess I mean I guess the wizard did end up you know improving, um, but it's not it's not that situation where it's just trying to let's get rid of this guy on a big contract. It's we're going to move this guy not because he's on a big contract, but because he happens to be a poor fit and has a big contract um which i think there's a big difference there and that makes it makes it really tough um so uh i think i mean anything else you want to add there adam and we can kind of keep talking about some of these things but yeah i would i would just echo your point that like you know they could you know in a vacuum you would probably get more value for ben simmons if you were going to take you know a few young players and some draft picks rather than you know some similarly higher paid player who might help you offensively but struggle defensively like McCollum. Um, but given the spot they're in in terms of the timeline, like you're saying, you have to be trading Ben for someone who you think can help you right away contend for a championship. 
so it makes it, you know, all the more difficult to pull off a trade that actually gives you fair value. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Matt Reeves in here saying Buddy Heald, Marvin Bagley, per Bleach Report. Any deal centered around Buddy Heald, like, it just, like, Daryl is too smart to do that. Like, Buddy Heald's a fine player, but he's still much worse than Ben Simmons. I don't care. He's, a, he's one of the best off-ball shooters. He can't really create for himself. He's a poor defender. Like, I'm not trying to tear into Buddy Heald, but anything with a as a Buddy Heald-centric return would be would not be anything that helps the Sixers. They'd probably be a first turnout next year if that was the best player they got back in return for Ben. Um, I, I agree, by the way. So I, I'm not trying to, like, not trying to just, like, attack Buddy Heald, but I've seen that floating around a lot, uh, whether it's in a couple articles or on Twitter, and I think it's just I think it's just silly. Um, so I, I won't even entertain those. No, I guess I just did entertain it because Matt talked about it, but I want to get my general thoughts on it uh, out of the way, uh, and I will never be – I will not talk again about uh, Ben Simmons to the Kings uh, if Buddy Heald is the main package back. Um, but the other guys I think you mean, the other guy would, that makes some sense is Zach Levine. Um, and I, I think the question there um, is, like – what what version of Zach Levine? I mean, I think Zach Levine helped a lot, especially for a guy who can you know, shoot off dribbles, a very good off-ball shooter as well, can get to the rim. Um, but I am curious, like, what version of Zach Levine are you getting? Are you getting the one who, you know, was a borderline All-NBA guard before he dealt with COVID this year? Um, or are you getting the one who was, you know, uh, you know, a very good scorer, but very limited defensively and with some playmaking issues? I lean more toward the former because he finally has NBA caliber coaching and he would still have that with the Sixers despite all of Doc Rivers flaws. So, um, but I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the, the deal looks like there for the, you know, I guess, I guess what helps in that sense is that um, if you're doing that, the Sixers do have a couple of young guys who are intriguing, you know, with Tyrese Maxey, Matisse Thibel, um and the Bulls would, I mean, the Bulls wouldn't have a ton beyond that. I mean, I feel bad for Nikola Vucevic. He'd be kind of be back in the same situation again, but um, I don't know if the Bulls are willing to, you know, part with Zach Levine, given the fact they just traded their first round pick. Um, it was protected, but for for another, you know, all star. So um, I think that's probably your kind of right now your best hope, honestly, in terms of the, the top the top player or the top individual guy back. Um, but uh, my other issue too, and we'll talk we'll talk about Doc. Um, but the issue is if you if you try and find some sort of talent upgrade you're probably going to have to attach a player or something like that. And Doc has shown a willingness to play very deep into his bench. And that like in some, in some cases it'd be like, yeah, you're like, okay, you just trade a couple of bench guys along with your, your, your kind of your, your all-star player and you're fine. You shorten rotation, but Doc hasn't shown a willingness to do that really anywhere. And so I think that is a concern when you look at it from a playoff lens. Um, but any other players that you think might be, you know, either idealistic or maybe somewhat, attainable whether it's between i guess whether it's this offseason or before next year's trade deadline that you know maybe i missed or that you had in mind yeah i think we just talked to each other enough or too much i guess because the other two names i was thinking were malcolm brogdon and zach levine who you brought up both um i've never been you know a huge levine guy as you know but i mean he just averaged 27 and a half points a game on i think like 63.4 percent true shooting or something in that range um, yeah, pretty ridiculous is, number for a team that was a, was still devoid of a lot of perimeter shots. Yeah, yeah, it was. He was like to some extent left alone as, as far as creation goes, and had an incredible scoring year. Uh, I've never been like a huge fan of his decision making or his defense, but the offense is so good with him that uh, that probably is just the best case scenario. Is you have you know a top five or so player in Embiid, and then you have this awesome perimeter scorer who's your second best player and. 
you know, that would obviously take some of the load off of Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey and Jake Milton and all these guys who probably have a little too much on their plate right now. Yeah, for sure. I think, and I think what's important to note is yes, there is trade off. If you trade Ben, you are, you're, you're getting rid of one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA. For all of Ben's fault throughout these playoffs, the Sixers defense was still great. It was led by Joel Embiid but it was also key because of the pressure that Ben Simmons applied on the perimeter. I know there's been some narratives going around like, oh, like, you know, Ben didn't do well against Trey Young. Like, it's just not true. Like, maybe some other guys did. Maybe, like, I don't care about matchup data. I watched all the games. I know Ben did a good job against Trey Young. Yes, Trey got the best of him at times, but he and Joel were great there. Um, but anyhow, sorry, just kind of a tangent. But the point being is that, yes, you sacrifice kind of some defensive ceiling, but I think the path for the Sixers to contention would be to rather go from a top two defense with a top 15 offense would be if you get a guy like Levine or McCullum or Malcolm Brogdon and Malcolm Brogdon is the best defender among those three guys that we mentioned. Um, you'd probably go, you would ideally get, have like a top five, top six offense and the top 10 defense, because the fact of the matter is like, you're going to be a very good playoff defense when you have Joel Embiid. Um, it's just the reality. Um, like maybe you, maybe you struggle a little bit in the, in the regular season because of the way that Joel hasn't quite applied himself in terms of kind of his engagement level all the time. In the in the regular season, um, but defensive in the playoffs, you're going to have a very good defense still. And I actually think that would be kind of be the the path for the Sixers to be an elite team. And I think that is a better path forward than the one that they kind of had had tried to go with the last couple of years, at least. Um, and where, where they've I tried to have a top two to three defense. Obviously, it didn't happen last year, um, but this year they had. A, I think they were the second ranked defense in the regular season, the thirteenth or fourteenth ranked offense, and clearly that was not enough because the defense remained quite good in the playoffs, um, but the offense really fell short when it counted. So, um, I, I agree, and I think you know I do want to talk about Ben in general um, beyond just kind of talking about him as a, as a trade guy, um, because I, I've seen a lot of stuff going around where. It's, Oh, give give Ben a better team, kind of build around Ben. And I'm not trying to say the Sixers are the the optimal team for him. Building a team that is post centric around a guy like Joel Embiid is not maybe the ideal way for Ben Simmons to thrive offensively. Um, but I I am kind of exhausted about hearing that as the retort for his struggles because so many of Ben's struggles are self inflicted. Like at this point, um, like yes, it'd be great if he if he shot spot up threes or if he had some semblance of a mid range pull up game. Um, but it would be even better if he attacked the rim consistently, had more, had creativity as a finisher, could could post up and score rather than just post up and facilitate. Um, like people have harped on Joel Embiid shooting threes for all these years. Part of the reason he has to shoot threes is because the guy who's kind of insisted on being the primary ball handler doesn't shoot outside of five feet. Um, and so I, I just I don't I don't want to hear any more about why this team isn't set up for Ben to succeed because Ben gets in his own way more more often than anything else involved. And I'm not trying to attack Ben unfairly, um, but he has a lot of self-inflicted deficiencies that could overlook in a way that should not anymore. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I just don't want I don't want to hear it anymore. Like, I, like, like he doesn't, he, he runs these pick, he runs pick and rolls dribble handoffs and he just stands there. He doesn't roll the basket. He doesn't crash the glass. He's inconsistent when he sets screens. Like he can't really finish with left hand around the rim and everyone knows it. So they funnel him to the right side. Um, like just like, just watch 15 games of Ben where he's struggled uh, and you'll understand kind of what I'm getting at here. Um, and what, what, because it's way more than anything the Sixers roster construction, especially this year has done. Um, but what do you, what do you kind of feel about Ben as a player at this point and kind of where he needs to improve, um, to kind of reach his quote unquote potential, maybe the, the misguided understanding of who he is as a player offensively. If it, yeah, yeah, well, first of all, player. everything, everything you said, I echo a hundred percent. Um, I think it's worth pointing out not only, 
does Joel Embiid have to take a lot more threes than he should to placate for Simmons' weaknesses? But really, the entire team is built with Ben in mind, not Joel. And that's why they signed Al Horford last year to be a backup stretch five, even though it made, you know, Joel's life much more difficult. Uh, and they say, let Jimmy Butler. Year, I, I would I would note this year it was built more for Joel, but in previous years I definitely agree that it was catered right. for yes. right. Ben. But I, but I agree in general. Right. What I'm getting right exactly. I should I should clarify. I mean more so the previous front office that mm-hmm. uh, that you know it's worth noting drafted Ben did not draft Joel. Um, now that Daryl's taken over, I think they have the right priorities in mind uh, building around Joe. Um, but it's been a lot of years of. You know, oh well, Ben Simmons. You know, play him in small ball. Put put him with shooters and play up tempo. Uh, like you said, a, a team that's entirely built around Ben Simmons is just not going to be good. Um, and you know, we've had this conversation many times, Jackson. But uh, I really just I look at it and it's like, why why is it that we are supposed to assume he could lead a team on his own when the Sixers still have never been able to survive Joel Embiid being off the floor? Like, if Ben could, like, just take these units and go steamroll people the way that, you know, I think people look back at the end of the 17-18 season and that winning streak they had after Joel got hurt. Like, if that was not just a flash in the pan, we would know it by now. Mm-hmm. And and we just haven't seen it in the years since. Like, he can't even, you know, and, and this is not solely on Ben. It's also on Tobias and the coaches and the rest of the roster. Um, you know, we've seen the Sixers continue to trot out lineups that, you know, feature what you would think is good personnel, even without Embiid, and they still struggle mightily. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you say surround them with shooters. Do you mean, like, maybe putting a 45%, 41%, 39%, 38% shooter <laughs> around them this year? Like Ex- they did? Exactly. Uh, exactly. So, yes, of course, like, Joel is, Joel is not a 38% guy for his career, but if you watch the, the Sixers this year, like, when Joel did space, teams had to guard him because – if you gave him space, he would just step into that mid-range jumper that was basically automatic. And like even when even when Ben went off in game, I think it was game three of the third quarter against the Hawks, um, it worked because Joel was like, "I'll play on the perimeter more if they're going to be so aggressively doubling and fronting me." Um, and so, like, I'm not trying to absolve Joel of all his issues. Like all of his like, yes, 21 turnovers the last three games is like pretty ridiculous. I think it is more though an indictment of the fact that he had run so much offense through him because Ben couldn't do anything and Tobias was struggling. So. Um, I th- I just think it's weird how like Joel Embiid is clearly the team's best player and, and like for anyone who has like I'm not trying to take shots at anyone in, in, in like directly but for anyone who's watched them long enough he's been that way since Ben was drafted um, but for some reason it's always it's always Joel who needs to be better uh, whereas Ben is just a, a victim of roster construction where I I would argue that it, it should skew more the opposite even if both you know should be better in certain ways and aren't maybe I in ideal situations but. Um, it, it's just the, the shooting idea is so funny to me because of the fact that the Sixers had four guys who commanded gravity off the ball this year at, beyond the arc, um, and yet Ben had like his least his least good scoring season. Um, maybe I mean I take context. Obviously, his rookie I think was maybe a little bit worse, um, but he was a rookie, um, and so yeah, I just like I I just like I I I don't. I don't want to hear any more about the idea of, well, Ben needs to go to a better structure. Maybe in terms of, like, maybe make a better team, better fit. Like, maybe in terms of, he just needs a fresh draw. I could buy that. But I don't buy this idea that, like, like he needs a team that caters to him because it's, because he has a guy who can, who can, he has two guys who can assume a bigger scoring load than him. Three by the time the playoffs roll around and Joel and Seth Curry. 
He has a, a dominant interior defender that he can pair with defensively. Um, he has a guy, a, a pull-up shooter, Seth Curry, who was, you know, like he and Joel, Seth and Joel had a pretty nice two-man game in the, in the second, in the regular season, or in the postseason. I think it kind of was even better. Um, like, if, like there are just enough pieces there for Ben to be a better player than he is, and I don't think that is baked in enough to the general narrative around him. So Ben Simmons is a very good player. I don't want to be too hard on him. He had a very tough playoff run um, offensively and down the stretch, of course. Um, but but I just think when you analyze who he is, it has to center more on his own shortcomings more than anything the team puts around him because he is in a pretty pretty dang good spot to thrive offensively, but doesn't because of his own limitations at this point. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Really, everything you said, I would echo. Uh, and I'm not even sure I have anything to add because I think you you touched on it all pretty effectively. Yeah, I would I would say um, if we're maybe. Sh- Shifting back to trade packages quickly, I know one that's maybe been tossed around a bit is Michael Porter Jr. I think that would be a really interesting one, honestly. Um, you would lose a lot defensively when you go from Ben Simmons to Michael Porter Jr., but you'd gain a lot off-ball offensively, of course. Um, like a lot, a lot comparing Ben Simmons to, to Michael Porter Jr. Um, would be a pretty ridiculous uh, upgrade as an off-ball player uh, offensively. Uh, I know that's one that's tossed around. I don't know if Denver would do that. Um, I probably would not do that as Denver, given the way that Michael Porter Jr. has grown. His first couple of years has, has stagnated, but um, I do kind of get the idea of that. And I would be intrigued. To see, I would like if I'm if I'm the Sixers front office, I'm at least you know like approaching that you know kind of like seeing if the, if Denver's interested. You know because Denver obviously probably to take the next step probably has to be a little better defensively um, than they've been. I think they might have been 12th or 11th in defensive rating. So I don't want to this year. Um, so I don't want to be you know overly critical or defense. But let me check quickly. Uh, this year they were 11th, so I uh, probably want to be a little higher there, but when you have an offense you know, built around Michael Porter Jr., Nicole Jokic, and Jamal Murray, uh, assuming Jamal Murray can come back healthily, um, you're probably in pretty good shape there, but I think that's at least maybe a framework of an idea that could at least have some legs to it, but I wouldn't I wouldn't do that for Denver, but um, let's let's shift gears um, a little bit. I think we kind of touched on that a lot um, because I do want to talk about Doc. Um, I mean, given the way that Daryl talked about him today, he was very complimentary kind of the way he handled things, um, you know, following the loss and kind of challenging guys to be better and kind of challenging the whole organization to be better. So um, I, it does sound like he's obviously going to stay. Um, but man, like, I, I, like Ben is movable, right? Like you can, you could believe in the idea that Joel Embiid is so good that you could find a number two player um, that makes them better. But man, is it hard to believe in the Sixers as a title contender as long as Doc's around. Um, because I mean, he, he, I, I, I want to say he is more responsible for the Sixers losing that series than, than Ben is. I don't know if that's necessarily fair, but he basically just gave away game one and they lost four, three, um, and gave away some other games as well. And I don't gave away, but like made some pretty baffling decisions rotation wise. Um, but I, I want to kind of give you the, the floor here to talk a little bit, Adam, but, but where do you think, how do you feel about kind of that statement for me and, both statements, I guess, in terms of him limiting their ceiling and him also being responsible. The biggest reason for their their loss, even if a blame can be assigned in other ways. And kind of what do you make of Doc at this point? Yeah, I, I mean, the word that, that comes to my head first is stubborn. Uh, and yeah. that's part of why I, I agree with a lot of what you just said, because he is so uh, fixated on winning a certain way that he refuses to adjust even if that way is not going to give him a realistic path to winning. Like it should have been very clear early on in the series. You got to go to like seven or eight guys. You got to do, you know, what Milwaukee and Brooklyn just did playing their guys, you know, 48 to 53 minutes in a game, in a, you know, elimination game. 
you know, you just got to go all in on your best players. And we saw him go to what, 10 guys in the second round of the playoffs. Uh, yeah, it's, I think basically it's brutal. And yeah, he went, he went 10 guys in game seven. And that was without a starter. Um, right. So you're playing your 11th best player in a, in a game seven. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, you know, it's, you know, Ben is movable. All these guys, all these players, you know, you can trade for another player. You can have someone make a big leap. Uh, but especially given, you know, how fixated Doc has been on his strategies for really his whole career, especially the last few, whether that was in Philly or with the Clippers when they, you know, have famously blown some big leads. Uh, it's just, it's really tough to see him winning a championship as a coach. Uh, and I'm, I'm never the like, oh, you got to fire the coach immediately. Like I'm not that guy. Um, and there, and it doesn't really matter what I think because to, he just signed a very big five-year contract and he's not going anywhere for a long time. Um, but I too am at the point where it's like, what is the path to someone with, you know, these sort of outdated strategies? Uh, you know, what is the ceiling for a team coached by that guy, especially when the roster is not exactly perfect? Yeah. It's like, what does a talent upgrade do if Doc's not going to play that talent that for that, for the M, the upgrade to be that much more meaningful? Um, like, like, look, I, I, I want to preface all this is just about Doc as a coach. I, I don't want to, like, make it seem like I'm attacking his character or anything like that. Um, but, like, you're playing Shake Milton in the fourth quarter of a Game 7, and Shake Milton had, what, one good playoff, like, stretch this year? Um, yeah. I'm not trying to attack Shake at all. I, like, I mean, Shake was a key part of them winning Game 2, and they needed to win Game 2. But, like, like what is the what is the rationale like there and, and he'll give you like he'll give you like we want to see what he could get but like that's like that's not a, that's not an answer like like why are you playing george hill matisse Abel 22 and 21 minutes in, in the game in game seven i'm not saying those guys are bad players but like like i just just the decisions are baffling and there was no beyond the the, the elongated rotation there was no big adjustments um, and I thought he did do some, like he, I thought he and the coaches have to do some good things defensively. Um, you know, they clearly did a good job, you know, kind of containing Trey Young throughout the series. Um, like I know Trey Young had some big moments, but like, if you look at his play, like his numbers, um, he was not great. Um, you know, he's a, he's a very good passer, but like the scoring efficiency was way down. And that was largely because of the way the Sixers were able to defend him. Um, but offensively, there was just no, no adjustment f- from, from that coaching staff. So like maybe Dave Yeager deserves, you know, some responsibility there as well, because he is the offensive coordinator. Um, but obviously at the end of the day, Doc has the final say uh, on the bench there. Um, and there was just, there was just a lack of adjustments. Like I, I, I guess the big adjustment they made was like, oh, let's give the ball to the Seth Curry guy who is a flamethrower right now, which like. Like I feel like most of us could do anyone. Like I'm not tr- like I'm not trying to say that coaching's easy, but like if Seth if Seth Curry is, is at 80 percent true shooting the playoffs, uh, you're probably going to run a little more offense for him. Like it's it's a fairly right. basic adjustment there. I mean, even then in Game Five when they imploded, Seth Curry had freaking Lou Williams on him, and they just went away from it. And like and Joel was clearly laboring a little bit there, and it's just it just is so baff. Like I just I don't know how you can feel confident. Like like Ben could be on the team. Like if I think of this, if I was trying to say what would improve the Sixers' odds more next year, whether it was trading Ben Simmons or finding a new coach, I think it would be finding a new coach. Um, I think Doc is a is a fine, you know, Ryan is saying he's an eighty two game coach. I think he's a fine eighty six game coach. Like I, I want to give him a first round kind of there, um, but like, like I just I, I don't I don't know how you can feel confident in this team, regardless of the personnel, um, unless you just have ridiculous talent. 
um, because of the way that Doc handled this playoff run. Um, and like it's good he played devised 45 minutes and played Joel 41. I don't think he can go much more than, than that for Joel without really risking him being just absolutely dead tired. And even even then, he was still fairly compromised offensively. Um, but like, why Seth Curry only 31? I guess Seth Curry had five fouls and he was struggling defensively. But like, but still, I think you should have played Seth more in some of these games down the stretch. Like, um, yeah, I just, I, I just, I just am baffled throughout the series and. Um, I was very vocally critical of him, and like at times in the first part of the playoffs, I was I was commentary because I thought he did some really good things. You know, whether it was riding the hot hand off the bench or things like that. But um, when it really counted, he he couldn't be relied on. And this is a this is a longstanding issue. You know, I I don't think it is a I don't think it's coincidence that Doc is. I think he now has the most losses in NBA history as a coach when with a chance to clinch the series. I think I saw yeah, that, that. That's I think correct. Twenty nine. I want to say, um, which is just ridiculous. So. Uh, like I don't want to be all doom or gloom, doom and gloom about the Sixers, but but I find it really hard as someone who covers a team to be confident in their playoff chances, um, because, largely because of Doc and his history there, um, far more than you know Tobias' struggles as a creator when it gets comes crunch time and, and Ben's kind of inability to really foster an impact offensively. Which yes, those are key issues in the Sixers' demise this year. But um, when you're losing games, like when the margin is so thin, like like yes, Tobias and Ben struggle, but like. I'd rather play them than give, you know, like Matisse, Seibel, George Hill, Shake Milton, Dwight Howard minutes. Like, like I'd rather roll with the guys who got me here than the guys who you know, were like yep. riding the train with everyone else. So um, those are my thoughts on Doc. Uh, if you have anything to add, we can talk about it. But I do want to maybe look ahead a little bit um, to, you know, kind of just other things. But anything you want to add about about Doc and kind of his, his tenure and his faults uh, as coach? Yeah, I think you described it pretty well. I would just mention, just because it's so egregious, the Tobias plus four reserves lineups. Uh, and it's one thing in the regular season to have, you know, what are your better players, lead second unit lineups, get your starters some rest, okay. In the playoffs, let alone in the second round, and in a series where for most of it they were trailing, to be p- continuing to go to these lineups yeah. and watching them get killed over and over and still going back to them is is just unbelievable to me that he did that. Um, and it speaks, again, to the level of, you know, stubbornness that he shows as a coach. Again, we're strictly talking about him as a coach, not a person. Uh, I'm sure he's a great guy, but uh, the stubbornness that he exhibits as a coach uh, is, a, is a major hindrance. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's and I got that point about Tob- the Tobias plus Ben signups is, is a great example of that because they had nice numbers in the regular season and and quite frankly they like anecdotally speaking they did look pretty solid like they were effective at times but um, it clearly wasn't working in the playoffs and he was unwilling to change from that so um, I, at least kind of, I can understand some some of it to a degree like coaches like familiarity but um, it still is pretty indefensible to me um, but you know I guess kind of shifting gears a little bit. Um, what, what do you see as the, the, like, beyond kind of maybe trading Ben, what are the ancillary moves this team could make to, to improve it? Like, I think kind of the main one for me is finding a, you know, at least for the time being, I'm going to analyze this team as if Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are its two best players. I mean, you can say, like, Whatever you want to say, like I, I don't. I mean, you can say Tobias is a better player than Ben. I don't really care about that. But like, those are kind of your two guys that you know building are blocks. Going, yeah, you're, who the success is going to hinge on. Um, I think finding a backup center who can play with one of those guys would would be huge. 
I think that was honestly like probably the biggest blunder that that Maury made this year. Um, because I, I don't, I, I wasn't there. I can't speak to maybe what how those negotiations went down when it comes to the James Harden or Kyle Lowry potential deals. But I think not finding a center who works better with with Ben um, was really an issue. And you talked about kind of Al Horford last year and how that, like, I'm pretty sure Al Horford and Ben had pretty good numbers together last season when Al was the backup five, and that that worked because you know uh, Al could space the floor and he could also kind of be a little bit of a passing hub there. Um, you get to Dwight Howard, and Dwight was fine in the regular season, um, but in the playoffs he was just kind of a disaster. Um, and Dwight is now that he can't space the floor, he can't. You don't want him dribbling. Um, you don't want him doing anything like that. Um, so that's my biggest priority. If if this is the team, this is kind of who they're going to put their, you know, championship hopes on in terms of the personnel. That's where I would want to go is finding a more complimentary center for Ben. Um, I think that would help, and I think it like. I think that would just be a, a, just more shooting off the bench. I think would help too. Um, but what do you kind of, I guess, identify as ways for this team to to upgrade its its talent and kind of cohes- cohesion um, that doesn't involve making some major move, uh, necessi- necessitating a trade for your three time twenty four year old all star. Yeah. Um, first of all, I agree wholeheartedly about the Dwight Howard stuff. Dwight obviously is like a quality backup center in a vacuum and to have him on a veteran's minimum contract is fine. Uh, but it always seemed weird because like, of course the whole idea is Embiid and Simmons don't necessarily fit perfectly together on offense. So you kind of tailor certain lineups to each one of them and you stagger, but Dwight Howard made even less sense next to Ben Simmons. Um, so that was something where as it happened, I was a little confused by it. Uh, and I agree that that was one of their bigger blunders. Of course, if they could have traded Ben Simmons for James Harden, all of a sudden Dwight Howard as the backup center makes a ton of sense. But uh, that's neither here nor there at this point. Um, you probably don't have many issues with roster construction if you have James Harden, <laughs> Joel Embiid, right. and Dwayne in the right. right, which, like, you know, I don't know if we're going to talk about this or not, but I think the turning point of the season was when they didn't trade for Harden. Uh, and, of course, they were still a great team. Uh, and, you know, they earned the one seed. Uh, but to me, when they let Harden get to Brooklyn, and who knows, you know, I, I say they let, who knows if Brooklyn just really had the more intriguing offer or what, but when they had a chance to get James Harden and instead he formed a super team in Brooklyn, uh, you know, to me, that was when I said, okay, like, this is not a championship contender. Um, so, you know, that's just, that's a bit of a tangent, but just my thoughts on that. Um I think the other thing is, like, I, really some reliable guard play would be nice. Uh, and I guess the hope is that that's going to come from the second year of Tyrese Maxey, uh, who, of course, like, in big moments stepped up. Um, I wouldn't mind if they went and got some sort of veteran guard and they and Maxey kind of duked it out for some minutes or you go small a little bit more. Um, but, you know, when Ben Simmons is your quote-unquote point guard, you you don't really have a point guard because that's not what he does. Um, yeah, and I think I think the the one point I would you know and and Daryl talked a lot about this today in his pressers kind of improvement whether it's internal external. I think the hope could be is that a full offseason for George Hill to get healthy, regain his form because I do have I think they can guarantee his contract uh, sometime in the summer because um, he does have one more year remaining. Um, I think that you know that could be a hope. I don't like I don't necessarily I wouldn't want. You know, if I was six, I probably wouldn't rely on that as my only upgrade. But I do think there's a chance that George Hill's a much better player last season because, to be fair, George Hill is a much better player than we saw this year. Um, yes, he has aggression issues kind of at, at all times as a scorer, but um, not to this degree. This degree. Um, and so I think that would be the one place you could maybe 
kind of argue they don't need to hunt a ton because you could get Maxie in year two and then maybe George Hill with the full offseason in, in time to you know get fully healthy uh, and kind of learn the entire offense and, and defense there. But um, if I cut you off, can I continue to keep going? But I just want to note that. I think that is one thing that we could see as a way they improve is with George Hill kind of fully assimilating to this team. Yeah, I agree. I was I was pretty excited when they got George Hill. It's always someone who I thought would be really useful for the Sixers. And he did have some nice defensive moments in the playoffs, as you mentioned. But the offense really all year was pretty disappointing from him. Um, I think, you know, they can – I believe it's about $10 million that he's owed. But if you cut him before the offseason, it's only $1 to $2 million, I want to say. those. Are, I might have the exact numbers wrong, but – I think even with him struggling, you should keep him just because worst case scenario, you use him as a medium sized salary and some trade at the deadline next mm-hmm. year. Um, but I, you know, I, I've been burned by it over the last few months, but I still do like, you know, maybe George Hill is just past his prime now and is not the same player that he once was, but I do think he can be like a legitimate help to this team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he is this guy that for so long has been thought of as this, like, really easily portable two-way guard. Um, so, you know, if they, you know, maybe they don't even have to sign a guard to duke it out with Maxie. Maybe you just play Maxie and George Hill together, and that gives you, you know, the improvement at guard that you need. Yeah, for sure. I think the one thing I would like to see also is a little more size on the bench on the wings. Um, they were so small. Um, they're yeah. basically, they're running, I mean, when they did their all bench lamps, it was four guards when their tallest one is six, five Matisse Thibault, who's slider frame, who has a long wingspan, but still kind of a little bit less, less, uh, bulky than you'd like. Uh, and then Dwight Howard and, and Dwight, I mean, Dwight is small. I mean, I think, I think when they did, they did pre-season measurements, Dwight was like six, nine and Ben Simmons was like six, ten and a half, something like that. Yeah. Um, and so I would like to see a little more, um, a little more size from them on the wings, and that could help off the bench. Obviously, they have the the size on the wings currently um, in the starting lineup with with Danny, Tobias, and Ben. Um, but off the bench, they were they were smaller. Like I think that that was part of the issue. Is that I think the this bench's success was often matchup dependent, um, and I think kind of having a little more flexibility there um, would help. Again, maybe it's not a deal to encourage Doc to play more bench guys, but uh, I think if you're kind of trying to find a way back for this team to continue, you know, be the one seed again. Um, that could be a regular season tweak and, and help um, rather than trying to rely on four guards all the time um, who are kind of thrust into different positions and roles at times. But uh, that's the other thing that came to mind for me. Um, but I mean, I, I think, I think the bigger, you know, the, the big, the big things, obviously like who, I, I guess to, to ask you, like who would you deem as kind of, if you're trying to like, power rank guys who are, you know, untouchable all the way to, you know, should, should be let go, should be traded. Like, how do you, I don't, I don't want, you don't have to list every player played this year, but like, who are kind of some of the key guys in those tiers for you and how you view them this year as kind of the front office heads into a, a key offseason, especially based on the way Daryl spoke um, this morning. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously Joel would be, you keep, under every possible circumstance. Tobias Harris, it doesn't even matter if I would trade him or not because that contract is not getting dealt anytime soon. Um, you know, it's so like Seth Curry's under contract for two, two more years at a combined, I think, like 16.3 million over that span, which is obviously like one of the better uh, value contracts in the league, rookie deals aside. Um, yeah, Danny Green must, is a free agent. Yeah, yeah Danny Green is a free agent. And to me, that's the big one this offseason. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he frustrates a lot of people. I get why uh, it sucks when he's on the downside of being a streaky shooter. 
Um, and, you know, he got blown up by Trey Young. But he is, a, like, a useful defensive player and a great shooter who is their most willing shooter. I mean, if Seth, if Seth Curry plays the way he just did next year, then maybe that won't be true. But in the regular season, Danny was the mo- guy most willing, you know, ready, willing, and able to launch from three. Uh, and, you know, he he made, I think, 40 41% of them, which is obviously tremendous. Even if he drops down to somewhere in the high 30s, like just having that guy shooting so much provides gravity to the offense. Uh, so I think, you know, above you know, uh, not addressing all the Ben Simmons questions that certainly are worth answering at some point um, and that we've talked about extensively today. Uh, I think the biggest thing might be just bringing back Danny Green and running back uh, at least 80% of this starting lineup because it was a very good unit. Yeah, I, I agree about Danny. I think obviously the shooting helps too. And one area I think they really missed him that I talked about after game six with, six with Nikias is as he's their best entry passer too, and I think that was part of the reason Joel struggled a little bit, um, is because the other guys just weren't quite as capable of making those entry passes. And Danny, Danny kind of taps into his history as a as you know, playing alongside post players, whether it's you know LeBron, AD, Kawhi, Tim Duncan, Lamarcus Aldridge, and that really helps him with with Joe. It's a subtle skill, of course. That's like I'm not saying bring back Danny Green because he's a good entry passer, but I do think it's something that he uh, kind of beyond the spot up shooting and the off ball movement really helps complement Joel offensively. Um, but with Seth, yeah, I mean, I am curious to kind of see what sort of player Seth is next year. Um, because, yes, of course, he's not going to be this. I mean, let's, I'm going to pull up his numbers here quickly, get the final tally on them. I know I've been updating throughout the playoffs on these streams. But um, final tally for Seth in the playoffs, um, 19 points per game, 58% from the field, 51% from three, 79% the line, uh, which brings him to a sterling drum roll here, 72.7% true shooting. Um, of course, he's not that good, um, but he is a very good offensive player. Um, and I think I'm curious to see where he levels out next year. Do we see kind of some more of this offensive aggression to where he's a 14 to 15 per point per game score than maybe the 12 to 12 and a half he hovered around this season? Um, and to that point, I don't think he's someone who should be moved unless you're getting a significant talent upgrade. Like I'm not going to put him untouchable because he's a he's a he's a low level starter, kind of a mid range starter. Um, but just kind of given how little he makes. Um, and how good he is and how well I think he and Joel's two-man game really blossomed in the playoffs, especially. Like, in that game five, just kind of the way he and Joel are flowing into two-man actions was was reminiscent of JJ, JJ and Joel a little bit um, yeah. in a way that I don't think we ever quite saw throughout the regular season. Like, we saw flashes of it with Seth and, and Ben and Joel, um, but in that game five, I really thought they kind of hit their stride, and I'm curious to see with another year um, to develop chemistry what that could look like for Seth and obviously even more time away from COVID. Because um, I think he's about five and a half months removed from you know, contracting it now, um, so he's a guy that I would really only move if I feel confident that like, like I, I don't want to like it, with George Hill's case, it'd be nice if he has played better um, and he would help the team. But he's not a guy I'm like you can only move if you're making a significant upgrade. Like the fact that he makes, I think he said like ten million. I think if they uh, if his contract is carrying. Oh, gee, that's got a phone call. Uh, but the, I was saying the fact that he. Only you know, the fact that, like he's a guy that I think you can lean more toward. It's good to keep him, and if he plays better, it's great. But like, it's also nice to have this sort of player who has a sizable salary. I'm not trying to reduce George Hill to a salary by any means, um, but I'm trying to articulate the difference between keeping George Hill versus Seth Curry. Um, and I think Seth is really key to them, and so I really would not move him unless it's for a substantial upgrade talent-wise, um, because he works really well with Joel, and um, again, he's not going to be this good in the playoffs. But I think you did see him kind of take a step forward in understanding exactly what this team needs him, him, 
of him offensively. And again, that's not going to mean he realizes that and shoots 51% from three. Um, but there were times throughout this year, and I know you and I have talked, and I've talked to the people on streams, that his offensive aggression was a little bit lacking and hurt the team, and that wasn't the case in the playoffs. So um, I think he, he is a great guy to kind of keep around. But I agree about Danny. Um, I'm sure I mean, we could honestly talk for uh, well, two more hours, but um, the one guy I do want to ask about is where do you stand on Furcon? Because um, he, is, he is a free agent. They have his early bird rights, if, I, if I'm correct. Um, but where do you think kind of resigning him? Where would you put that on the priority list or kind of maybe deprioritizing? Yeah, this is actually because, you know, because I'm an insane person. This is something I've been thinking about for the last few weeks, actually, uh, is what happens with Corkmaz. I'm, I struggle to gauge what his market will be. My guess is it's somewhere in like the four to seven million dollar range, depending on the team. Uh, because, you know, to have a legitimately very good shooter coming off the bench, especially one who's six, eight and can dribble a little bit. Uh, you know, is obviously valuable. Um, the interesting question to me with Furcon is, can you get 85% of Furcon from Isaiah Joe next year mm-hmm. at, a, at a very small fraction of the price? Uh, to me, if you can bring Korkmaz back probably on a one-year deal, I would do it because, you know, he's just like very clearly a reliable regular season rotation player, and that's worth having on a one-year deal. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, someone is going to pay him over multiple years and it would just further, you know, gets you close to that like 8 million number with Seth Curry and it just put makes things even more hard for you to be flexible financially, I wouldn't mind either, you know, trying to find someone else like, you know, like the same way the Lakers just like found Ben McLemore. Mm-hmm. Uh, like those guys who shoot a ton. Way what, Allen's what uh, is a free agent. Like there's just guys exactly. right off the bat. Right, exactly. Um, I think, you know, if you feel like, uh, it's a better bang for your buck if you get one of those guys and or give Isaiah Joe a shot. Uh, then I would let I would be comfortable letting Furcon walk. Um, again, if you can bring him back on, you know, some inexpensive deal, preferably for one year, then I'm all for it. Um, but I do think there's a chance that there's better value out there as far as you know. Uh, I don't mean to denigrate Furcon calling him this, but like a unitasker where he's really just got one thing that he does. Uh, I think generally, unless they're like so elite, like at a J.J. Redick level, at a Seth Curry level, uh, at their one skill, uh, then it probably is for the best to not pay those guys. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think I kind of feel similarly that within the right price range, uh, bringing Furcon back would, would be a shrewd move. Um, but anything, anything, I think honestly, anything like more than like one year, Five point six or something like that would be like like anything close to Seth would be like not not what they should do. And again, yes, Seth is on a, a deal that is well below his value, but um, I think it's kind of being being shrewd there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you you got a guy like I mean, you got you got Wayne Ellington who's so small than Ferg. I do think there's something to be to be noted that Ferg is a bigger player, um, you know, than some of these off ball shooters that probably that will that I'll talk about throughout kind of whenever we get closer to free agency. But um, I do want to get your thoughts on him because that's something someone asked me today about kind of, kind of where Furcon stands in terms of being resigned. Um, and it kind of came to my mind there, but um, I do kind of maybe just to close here, um, you know, because I, I do think we've, we've talked a lot about the flaws of this team um, and like maybe, maybe absolved Joel of them. Um, and I'm not trying to blame Joe by any means, um, because again, like 21 turnovers in three games, uh, like it, you can't have that be your offensive engine. I think that, again, that speaks more to the team around him, but, um, 
when you look at kind of what is the path for this team to to allow Joel to maybe be a one B player offensively and continue to be his dominant self defensively, like 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 I just I don't, again I don't want to absolve him of too, like I don't want to him all blame. He deserves some responsibility. He wasn't quite as good as you need, especially in the fourth quarter of some of these games. But to me, that stems more from the roster. Um, whereas when I talked about it with Ben, it stems more from Ben's own issues. Um, but what is kind of the step for Joel to maybe play his optimal role, which is a tough thing to find for any player. I mean, it's, it's very tough to find um, for superstars. It's a little easier for role players, but superstars, I think it's very tough for them to play an optimal role. But if there was one for Joel to be kind of the best version of himself, how do the Sixers get there, if, if at all? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough at this point. And I think, you know, the only realistic path is if you can get a very high level shot creator on the perimeter and and that you would probably need to trade Ben Simmons to do that. Like if you get Zach Levine and you offensively, he's your 1A, Joel is your 1B, and Joel is still dominating on defense. Like that is going to be a really excellent team, especially considering all the role players they have around them. Uh, So, you know, that I guess is the path, but my real genuine answer might be, you know, they blew it two years ago when they let Jimmy Butler walk, and then they blew it again several months ago when they didn't trade for James Harden. Um, you know, you don't get many chances to get players that good, especially ones who are, you know, almost exactly what you need. Um, so, you know, they very well may not get that chance again. Um, and hopefully Ben Simmons is their ticket to some guy, whether that's Levine or Brogdon or McCullum or somebody better that we're, we don't even think is available, uh, and then they can get there. But, you know, yeah. there's no way to say for sure that that is even possible anymore. Yeah, they, 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 got, one of, they got one of the top 12, 13 players in the NBA, and they had a chance to get one who's, who's even better. And they, they didn't, you know, those, those, I said those opportunities don't come around a lot. So I tend to agree. Um, I think the one kind of, optimistic thing for any fan base honestly is that the NBA moves really quickly um, and so I, I bet the next guy who you know the next superstar megastar comes available or next mega offensive talent um, is probably someone that we don't really have on our direct radar right now but but I agree I, and I, I do wonder you know, when you mentioned Ben like, like I, if they if they do like like I, it just kind of came to mind as you talked about this if they if they maybe try and they hold on to Ben and maybe kind of let him maybe recoup some of his value with a, with a strong start to the season. Now, I, I don't, I would, I probably wouldn't do that. Like, I would, I would feel risky about kind of letting Ben Simmons play determine things for me, kind of given just how mercurial he's been the last year or so, honestly. I mean, he was up and down all regular season, too. Um, but I do want something they might consider. So just kind of keep it on radar for people like Sixers fans listening. If they just wholeheartedly expect Ben Simmons to be traded sometime between now and training camp in, in, late, in late September. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe the, the value, the market for him is a little lower than um, the front office prefers, and maybe they try and let Ben get back to his all-star ways in the regular season. And, um, I don't want to say trick a team, but um, maybe kind of entice them a little more with his with his regular season play than kind of having the, the lasting memory be of his, his, his offensive shortcomings in the playoffs. But um, I appreciate you coming on, Adam. I hope for everyone listening we were insightful, kind of tried to recap things as – as objectively as it could, very much a weird year for the for the Sixers. Um, you know, like I said, Adam and I were pretty much in lockstep the entire about how we felt about this team, and they they kind of pulled us in right at the end where we felt like they could maybe win a title, and then of course they let go of the rope, and, and here we are on on June twenty second recapping a, another second round loss. So, um, Adam, give yourself a little shout out where can people read your work, where can they follow you, where can they listen to your content? Yeah, at Sixers Adam on Twitter, uh, writes to RickySanchez.com. 
and the Burners and Basketball podcast, which is on all podcast platforms. Uh, yeah, uh, make sure to uh, listen to Adam's work there uh, and read his stuff. Uh, follow him as well. I'm sure he'll have a bunch of offseason content. I feel like I feel like free agency and the, the salary cap stuff is always kind of your your favorite time of the yeah. year. Oh uh, yeah, it's my Super Bowl. <laughs> so yeah, so he'll be he'll be kind of your one stop shop for that that sort of stuff. Definitely will not be my forte. I'm sure anything that I anything that makes me sound smart when it comes to the cap uh, that I talk about here will probably come from Adam or someone else. So, um, but I appreciate everyone for um, hopping on today. The plan moving forward for the next few weeks will be to do some player reviews throughout the season um, from the season. Uh, then we'll get into some draft talk as well, of course. Um, but kind of a weird time for now, so I'm still kind of trying to plan out my definitive next steps, but expect some kind of player grades and whatnot. Um, obviously, the more important players will get longer streams. Um, other ones will be grouped into five or six players in one one hour-long stream or so, but um, I'll be, probably be back on Thursday um, talking more Sixer stuff, talking off-season, but as always, appreciate Adam coming on. Appreciate everyone for listening. Until Thursday, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. I will talk to all of you again soon.